Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to D.G. Will's Books in La Jolla, California. We would like to thank UCSD-TV, who will videotape this evening's presentation. And tonight, we're honored that Robert Polito and Patricia Patterson will discuss Farber on film, the complete film writings of Manny Farber. We're also also delighted that Leah Ullman, the art critic of the Los Angeles Times, and that Mark Quint is here to join the discussion also. Robert Polito, the editor of this distinguished book published by the Library of America, is a poet, biographer, and critic whose many books include Doubles, Hollywood and God, and Savage Art, a biography of Jim Thompson, for which he received the National Book Critics Circle Award. He directs the graduate writing program at the New School in New York City. To describe Patricia Patterson, Manny Farber's uh, co-author, collaborator, and wife, I defer to Robert Walsh's article, Manny's ABCs, a Farber lexicon, in which he states that the letter P should primarily be for Patricia Patterson, whose influence has permeated Farber's life and work since 1966, and whom we also celebrate any time we appreciate Manny Farber's art. Master of a -a one-of-a-kind prose style whose jazz-like phrasing and incandescent twists and turns made every review an adventure, Susan Sontag referred to Manny Farber as the liveliest, smartest, most original film critic this country ever produced. For Peter Bogdanovich, he was razor-sharp in his perceptions and never less than brilliant as a writer. And for Martin Scorsese, finally, a definitive collection of work by one of America's greatest film critics. Manny Farber's approach to movies was utterly unique. He saw elements and values that no one else saw. I already have a space reserved on my shelf for Farber on film. Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored to present Robert Polito, Patricia Patterson, Leah Ullman, and Mark Quint. Well, thank you very much. Thank you all for coming, and thank you, Dennis, for that introduction and for arranging this evening. And we have an extraordinary group with us tonight, starting with Patricia Patterson, Manny's wife and partner in film criticism, painting, and life, and Leah Ullman, as Dennis said, a writer for the L.A. Times, but also for Art in America, and did a wonderful interview with, with Manny, and Mark Quint of the Quint Gallery, who has done so much for art in this part of the world. And, and in this country. And there's an extraordinary exhibition that he's curated up. And if you haven't seen this, you should go see it right away. Well, not right away, but, but <laughs> as soon as we're done. Um, so that we have some of Manny's writing in front of us right from the start, I thought I would begin um, by reading the opening from his June 26, 1952 Nation Review of Clash by Night. And as I'm reading it, you might think about certain certain things like, um, you know, Manny is famous for a distinction between termite art and white elephant art. And in this piece, you hear an early nod towards white elephant art, though he doesn't exactly name it. But he's talking about the way that certain movies kind of pump up their own significance in an unearned way. And listen also for the the word choices and the boldness and the wit and sometimes just the sheer humor of those word choices and also there's a kind of tangle of that's so common I think in, in Manny's pieces of of praise and enthusiasm combined with reservation and, and skepticism so this is um, Clash by Night 
and I need to put these on, sorry. Clash by Night, a passable movie about sexual unrest on Cannery Row, is like a blues number given class by a Stokowski arrangement and a hundred-piece symphony orchestra. Barbara Stanwyck returns to her clapboard homestead near a sardine cannery after ten years of romantic misery in the city. Working around San Something, California, are Paul Douglas, a dumb fisherman who Stanwyck decides to marry for security, and Robert Ryan, a movie projectionist who not only speaks in the hard poetic language of Stanwyck, but has the kind of left-handed charm that causes the lady to stay up nights, gazing at the most costly sky and sea shots ever to grace a Howard Hughes RKO production. Ryan is fine for a ride on a roller coaster, but after a cataclysmic affair, their last shot at happiness, Stanwyck finds she can't forsake her year-old child and hurries back to the fishing boat where Douglas is busy fixing the baby's formula. This old-fashioned sex drama is supposed to hit you in the belly with its candid shots of men and women screaming, yearning, fighting, and suddenly coming together in rib-cracking embraces. But what was intended as a hot James Kane type of shocker was cooled considerably in the making by a hundred classy devices for making clichés look important and artistic. For instance, that old gimmick in which the man mouths two cigarettes at once is dragged in for kicks, then neatly twisted around. When Ryan hands Lady Stanwyck her cigarette, she throws it away as though she thought it unsanitary. Several reels later, after Ryan's excitement has wormed its way into her torn and twisted little bitch's heart, Stanwyck is lighting Chesterfields two at a time, just like her boyfriend. Stanwyck has occasionally been thought out by Sturgis and Wilder, but here she is up to her old trick of impersonating a mentholated icicle. With his mellifluous broadcaster's voice and cafeteria manager's body, Douglas, Douglas seems out of place as a Sicilian fisherman and silly in a turtleneck sweater that outlines every pound of his C-shaped stomach. Marilyn Monroe, who's supposed to be burning up the screen with her size 36 and a half bosom and horizontal walk, has several scenes custom-built to her measurements. Someone holds her upside down on the beach to shake the water from her ears. She gets out of bed in a tricky, hip-length skirt designed by Adrian for cannery workers. She walks around in dungarees, which must have been broken in by a midget cowboy. Nothing happens because Monroe is still a tight amateur presented as a spectacle. Given four-word sentences and simple actions like eating a candy bar, she seems to break them up into dozens of little unrelated pieces paced in a slow, sing-song fashion. Working with Manny and Patricia on this Library of America book, planning it, and talking about what I found with them as I found it, and talking with them as we went along about writing and criticism, was one of the essential, moving, and glorious experiences of my life. And talking about Manny and Patricia with their friends, who are now, I'm happy to say, among my friends, including so many assembled here tonight, was and is also essential, moving, and glorious. Manny Farber's insistence on criticism as language his insistence, too, that his critical language arise from the volatile particulars of the films he wrote about. 
made him the most adventurous and original stylist of the mid-century concentration of American film criticism that spans Otis Ferguson, Robert Warshaw, James Agee, Andrew Saris, and Pauline Kael. At the start of the 21st century, Farber also is proving the film writer with the deepest enduring influence from that distinguished critical generation. Farber once described his prose style as, quote, a struggle to remain faithful to the transitory, multi-suggestive complication of a movie image and or negative space. No other film critic has written so inventively from inside the moment of a movie. His writing can appear to be composed exclusively of digressions from an absent center. One of his standard moves is a bold qualification of a qualification in a sequence of vivid repositionings. His strategies mix self-suspicion, retreat, digression, and mulish persistence, so that Farber, totally Beckett-like, often proceeds as if giving up and pressing on simultaneously. There are rarely introductory overviews or concluding summaries. His late reviews in particular spurn plot summaries and might not even name the director of a film. And transitions seem interchangeable with non sequiturs. Puns, jokes, lists, snaky metaphors, and webs of illusion supplant arguments. Farber wrenches nouns into verbs. Hawks, he writes, landscapes, action, and sustains strings of divergent, perhaps irreconcilable adjectives such that praise can look inseparable from censure. His sentences will dazzle through layers of poise and charm. Sorry. But Farber, qua Farber, typically arrives, as we just heard from that opening to Clash by Night, at a kind of backdoor poetry, not conventionally lyrical or traditionally poetic, but original and startling. He's perhaps the only American critic of modernism to write himself as a modernist. His closest analog, I would argue, is the D.H. Lawrence of studies in classic American literature. Farber emerged as the boldest and most literary of film and art critics of the 1940s and 50s by coursing along almost stridently anti-literary tangents. Farber advanced a topographical prose that aspired termite fashion through fragmentation, parody, allusions, multiple focus, and clashing dictions to engage the formal spaces of the new films and paintings he admired. Briefly, let me address some of the surprises of editing this book. Farber's legend is for fierce serpentine essays that shun movie, fr movie criticism commonplaces like story synopsis, character psychology, and social lessons. Negative space inevitably accents Farber's extended performances of the late 1950s and 60s, the gimp, hard cell cinema, underground films, and white elephant art versus termite art. Reproducing, for instance, only a dozen full or partial columns from The Nation, where he started reviewing in 1947 and published over 65 film pieces, and just a single film column from The New Republic, where he started reviewing in 1942 and published almost 175 film pieces. The wonder of these early reviews is how impressively his New Republic and Nation columns deliver both his traditional criticism and innovative Farber prose, as he elegantly focuses acting, plot, even entertainment value, the very moves his monumental essays will resist. Farber on film returns those late essays to the movie occasions that prompted and sustained them. And one of the pleasures of reading Farber in chronological order is tracking precarious notions like termite art or the gimp or space or the underground 
across three decades. Ultimately, though, for all its intersections with negative space, Farber on film inscribes alternatives rather than correlatives. For the first time, it's possible to shadow Farber as a professional chronicler of new films and art shows, and he emerges as thoughtful and skillful precisely where his reputation predicts he might be careless. Actors, plots, judgments, even annual best lists. His columns for the New Republic and the Nation also comprise a sort of anthology of the infinite ways of scaffolding a mixed review. Early and late in his writing and for his paintings, Farber would demand multiple perspectives. And as he ultimately lamented about popular arts criticism, every review tends to become a monolithic put-down or rave. And he wrote that in Cavalier in June 1966. I'll end this segment by asking you to listen a little more to the mixed nuance and scruple of that 1953 Clash by Night review. As many teaches us to see what he saw, the writing entangled in the seeing, the seeing volatile and vivid in the writing, writer and then reader inside the moment of seeing, inside the moment of writing. And this is the, briefly, is the ending of, the, of that piece. Clash by Night doesn't have too much to offer outside of two good actors and fluid, flexible direction, Fritz Long. But they make it worth your time. Starting with a talkative script that offers nothing more active than a tight two setup between talkative characters, director Lang moves the story around a Monterey village with the space-devouring glide of a seagull. One of his neatest tricks is to keep the central fact of a scene at a tantalizing distance so that he forces you to use your own eyes and imagination on something the average director would wear out in a minute of screen time. He takes you to the beach with Monroe and her boyfriend, and then watches their antics from a block away as they affect a cynically interested onlooker. He plays through the first Stanwyck Douglas date at a movie house without ever showing the action on the screen that draws at least five revealing comments from the mismatched lovebirds. The script, like so many adaptations of Broadway plays, consists of endless exits and entrances. But Lang makes you so familiar with the architecture that one of the minor pleasures of the movie is trying to guess which stairway, door, or hallway will pull forth the next action. So it's my pleasure now to turn this over to Patricia Patterson. Thank you. Um, I don't, don't really know how to begin to thank Robert because he worked um, nine years pull, putting, the, putting this book, book together and um, not really getting any help from Annie or I. I mean, we would, we would say, you know, good job and, you know, <laughs> we're happy you're doing it and, but not, uh, but then we'd get on to talking about other things and, and, um, the development of of our friendship with Robert wasn't wasn't so much centered around the book at all. It was something that he was doing on his own, his own idea to do it, and um, carrying it through. And um, sometimes he would even apologize that it wasn't getting published quick enough, which we thought was kind of funny. Um, you know no po- apology necessary and um, it, was a, it was a curious experience because during all of that time um, Manny and I were, were primarily interested in, in painting in his painting and in um, 
the current the current work in the current exhibits and and during all that time the the retrospective happened at the La Jolla Museum and um, so when the book really arrived in the mail for me um, I didn't know most of this work the early work I, I only really knew the work from the time that we met in 1966 so there was 24 years of writing that um, with a few exceptions I hadn't I hadn't read and um, it was truly overwhelming and um, at first I had to just put the book away it was it was almost frightening it was so um, intense to read to read all of this work that many had really he hadn't collected it he didn't have it in the house um, he barely referred to it he would talk about the people that he worked with the um, the editors and the places where he worked and the and the experience of um, delivering delivering a piece and then working with with one of the editors on on pieces like that but um the actual writing was stunning um because each each one of the pieces was like in this kind of fierce act of engagement with the film and with um the act of writing, the, the 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 creating of the language that was going to express the film, and when when you read the pieces, each one of them is very um, singular. They, they um, he's really um, working very hard to create um, a kind of parallel work that will express the film, and and he takes each film as its. Uh, as it presents itself and um, doesn't have, you know, a standard way of proceeding at all. And um, just to see um, that many acts of engagement with writing was amazing because he was such a hard worker. And um, from the time that we met, um, he always had a job to make a living, so neither the writing nor the painting was a way of making a living. It was carpentry and then teaching. And um, while we while we lived in New York, um, we started we started working together on on everything. We rented a, a studio together, and I paid fifty dollars. He paid fifty dollars, and we had this big raw loft down by City Hall, and before it was Soho, it was maybe even Tribeca, but it was, there were a lot of artists living around there and filmmakers, and um, so we, even though there was quite a difference in our ages, we were, we were, um, we were in the, in the same place in our life. We both wanted very much to be to be artists to be painters and uh, having this studio this this loft this raw loft space was tremendously exciting and um and then we both had our day jobs he was a carpenter and i was t 
teaching. Um, I was the art teacher in elementary school for Catholic schools in New York City. And, um, but, but every chance we had, we would be working on the painting. And, and then um, Phil Leder, who was the editor of Art Forum, looked many up. He knew his writing, and he asked him to do a column for Art Forum um, every issue. And uh, we kind of took it on as, as um, a task we would do together. We went to the movies, and we would talk, and um, just ended up um, talking our way into, into the writing. He would ask me, what was that you were saying last night? And, and then uh, we would carry on from there. So the, in the beginning, the collaboration was like um, many typing, me talking, him turning what I was saying into real language that had some quality, and um, and then eventually it became he would he would type what I was saying and then hand it to me. I would read it. I would sometimes read it aloud, and we would go back and forth. So it became um, more a a laying out of the whole thing, but then going in and slicing into it and adding adding sections. Um, this was all... Um, he was paid $150 a piece, an article by Art Forum, and we would go to the movies a couple of times, always just the two of us going to the movie theater, and um, we could write about whatever whatever was of interest. And um, But when we came out to California, Manny started teaching and for the first time had a, had a, um, a, pre- a projector and was able to rent the movies he wanted to rent. And um, that started a whole new life. He was so excited and so really thrilled about having a projector and, 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 and renting these films and looking at them over and over again and, and building up the lectures. And right now there are two people who are working on books based on Manny's teaching notes, which um, th- there are a lot of them. And they're very good. And and the the, um, published writing stopped in 1977, but he continued for another 10 years to be uh, studying film and and, um, developing these notes. So um, getting back to the book, the book book was so overwhelming because... uh, of the density of it and the richness and and the change. He was someone who was always changing and always trying new things and was very flexible and able able, um, to do very hard work. He was able to teach a full teaching schedule, sleep a few hours, then get up in the middle of the night and do do painting, and I think that's what enabled him to be someone who could have such a deep entry into two different disciplines: the discipline of of writing and the discipline of painting. 
and continue them over a whole lifetime. And I, I keep, when I was doing my initial relationship with the book, I kept asking myself, how was he able to do this? How, how was he able to be that deep of a writer and that deep of a painter, both, while supporting himself at other jobs? And, and it, it always led back to his childhood where um, he was the youngest of three sons, and he had an uncle who wrote for the Brewery Gulch Gazette, which was the Bisbee, a Bisbee weekly paper. And this uncle was the only bachelor. There were, there were uh, four brothers who came from Russia. And um, the youngest, Jake, was the only bachelor. And he um, collected photographs of Jewish actresses. And Manny would, when he would visit his place up in up in Bisbee, there would be all these actresses on the walls, and and so he had Uncle Jake who was writing. He had his two older brothers who were very brilliant, and the and the father um, and mother, really encouraging them to be excellent at everything that they did. So he started. Um, as, a, as a, a young boy, um, 12, 13, going to the library and reading film criticism, which is quite astonishing, I think. He was reading Gilbert Seldes, and he was reading Stark Young. Gilbert Seldes was a writer who wrote about um, George Harriman's Crazy Cat, and um, so Manny was very involved with... He very interested in cartooning, so he started doing cartooning... He was interested in sports writing. He was interested in films and writing from a very, very young age. So he was used to um, all of these disciplines. And, and his two older brothers became psychiatrists. So the whole family was very um, studious, work-oriented. And um, I think this is... What he started so early with these things, it's what enabled him to keep them up, keep them up and, 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 and do all of them all the time. Um, there's really a lot to say. I, I don't... Um, maybe I could move to someone else. <laughs> Would thank it? You. Okay, thank you. Hard act to follow. I interviewed Manny for Art in America over yes. the course of about six weeks toward the end of 2003. It was a span of time that my family and friends probably remember as well as I do because I kept returning home from those sessions so full of Manny, just marveling and laughing, amazed at what he said and always amazed at how he said it. It seemed to me that he felt a need to go on the record about some things, not least the substantial, essential role that Patricia pay, played in his life and in the making of his art. I think he sensed that this might be the last chance, his last published interview. And with all his toughness and tenderness, he told me the story of his life, at least the way it looked to him at that moment, the way the pieces in retrospect fit together. Looking back over the transcripts of those interviews, 
I see that the very first words of Manny's caught on tape were, I'm always on edge. Much like the way he sat down in the garden with me and Patricia many years before, when I was writing a story about the two of them for the LA Times, and Manny declared right up front that he wasn't a part of the interview, then proceeded to be. He just wanted to be on the record. So I thought I'd read just a few interesting bits from that last extended interview. The first relates to what Patricia was just talking about, um, about his educating himself as he was teaching movies. When Manny and Patricia came to San Diego from New York in 1970, they only expected to be here a short time. Manny said, It was only supposed to be a semester or half a year. That was in our minds and in the minds of the art department here. I guess you could say I got intoxicated with teaching movies. It seems odd, but it's true. I hadn't had any formal education in movies when I was working on The New Republic and The Nation. What knowledge I had came from running to the Museum of Modern Art and seeing what movie they were showing that afternoon. Teaching about movies was a perfect way to not only educate the audience of students, but myself. At one point, talking about the notes and objects that he put in his paintings, Manny ended up describing something about his writing as well. I make it a point, he said, to get rid of all the slowing down elements. You step along with the spaces I set up. There's not a great deal of wastage. You sit pretty much where I want you to sit, and you examine things in pretty much the time element. The objects have a weight to them. They happen with a great deal of force, and they get finished with a great deal of impact. They're carried through with a sort of tenacity. That's something that's very important to me. Leaving out all the empty words in a sentence is very important. And later he added, I do a lot of joking in the use of words in an article, and I do a lot of it in painting. I'm having fun, and I want to keep you there. I want to keep you there a certain length of time, and I want the object to have weight. It takes a lot of time to paint those things, and I don't think you can read them except if you stay with them a long time. Usually in a painting or photograph, you take in the whole thing at once, then you move on. In mine, you live more with them, and I want you to. Thank you, for Patricia, for inviting me to speak to pay tribute to Manny, whose work and sensibility I respect so profoundly. And I'm thrilled about the new book to be able to keep discovering him and for him to be more thoroughly than ever on the record. Yes. Hi. Um, where to start with Manny? I've been asked to say a few words uh, about the aspect of his painting. I uh, met Manny when I was 30 years old. I had had a gallery in town for about three years. Manny was uh, probably about 65 at the time. I saw his paintings, uh, loved them, them uh, immediately, uh, asked uh, the collector whose house I saw them at, uh, about Manny, um, he said, uh, "Manny, he's a tough guy. You really uh, probably don't want to deal with him. You know, he's the paintings look really pretty. Well, not pretty, but beautiful, and they're great paintings. But he's been around, and he's." I said, "Well, I still want to meet him." So I was introduced to Manny. He immediately was one of the nicest guys I've ever met, and 
I didn't know for a good three or four years that he was a film critic. I thought he was just a spectacular artist, which he was. Um, he was one of the hardest working uh, people I've ever had the pleasure to work with, to, to know. I didn't have his home phone number for 10 years. He was constantly in the studio. Um, just uh, just a real worker. And we'd have great discussions, but we really wouldn't talk about painting much. He talked a lot about carpentry, um, and uh, which fascinated me. He talked a lot about music. Uh, the little bit we talk about film, I was once I knew as a film critic, once I read a little bit, I was scared, you know, to discuss any kind of movie with him. Um, but he, uh, he loved, I say loved, he watched all movies, all films. Um, I'd hear uh, reports from mainly students from UCSD. They'd be the reports that, oh, I hate Farber. He can't watch a film all the way through. He starts in the middle. He's, you know. <laughs> then I'd hear from students, I love Manny. He just starts in the middle of a film, goes forwards, goes backwards. You know. So, same with his paintings. You can start his paintings anywhere. Um, I, I kind of have the feeling the last 10 years that Manny was working on one painting, um, like a long film, and that you can jump into them, jump out of them uh, at any time. I think uh, that Manny, uh, well, for, for one thing, Manny started painting, started doing art when he was really young. People don't realize that. Um, like Patricia said, he started doing cartoons when I think it was you know, late, ten. yeah, nine or ten. Yeah. Um, I ran across uh, a collector from Chicago who had uh, bought a, a painting that he was thought that he thought Manny Farber did uh, from uh, when Manny was 22. And it turned out that Manny uh, had painted it. And he bought it at an auction. It was a painting of, of carpenters that was just yeah. spectacular. Um, so, like Patricia says, I mean, we could go on and on about Manny. He's, uh, he's complicated. He's easy. Um, I just, Robert, thank you so much for this book. It's you can you turn to any page in it, I think, and start your journey, your Farber journey. So, Thanks. so I wonder if we should maybe take any questions that people yeah. might have. I mean, there are a lot of people here who knew Manny. Well? If no one has a question, I will ask you if you would discuss the concept of negative space. <laughs> we were just talking about that. Well, it is a common um, painting term, which I knew um, as an art student, and, you know, way, way before I met Manny, and um, it doesn't have anything to do with negativity. It has to do with, um, as we were told in, in painting class, that... Um, you don't just deal with the subject in the center. You deal with the entire space. And um, when Manny talks about the film, a film frame, and he's, or, or the way an actor moves through the space, so he, see, he sees it as, as a very active, very live um, flow.
fluid thing. And, and in the introduction to negative space, he described three, three different um, kinds of space that a film can have. And so it can be like the psychological space. It can be um, how the foreground relates to the background, all of that. But um, a lot of the, the filmmakers that he was very attract, attracted to um, were very, very conscious of all of the space and, and, and working with it in different ways. So, I mean, that was a key part of his writing. Question no. from Manny's daughter? <laughs> yes, yes. Who came up with the name Negative Space? Manny? Yeah, yes. <laughs> I mean, the, the first time I met Manny, I'm pretty sure I sat in the, in the garden between their two studios and I was interviewing Manny um, for what I thought would only be an article. Um, and I kept asking him about, you know, termite art, white elephant art, and, and negative space. And I kept expecting him to offer very kind of clear and precise definitions of all of those things. And I was always astonished at, at how slippery the, the conversation would, would get at that at that point, yeah. and would usually kind of end with Ma- with Manny kind of shrugging his shoulders or throwing up his right. his hands. And so finally, at one point, I said, "Well, my wife thinks negative space means what what isn't there is at least as important as what is." And he goes, "That's pretty good." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I think that what what Manny did over and over again was um, reinvent um, where he was looking at a at a movie or a or a, or a painting from and and if you read through the book in in chronological order like one of his standard moves and he does it really in the first pieces in the 1940s but he does it again in the 50s and the 60s and again in the 70s is basically to say movies as we know them are over and then he says now let's look at what's in front of us and try to describe it and i think that that's i think Part of what is really going on in that introduction to negative space yes. is that he saw all of these movies from the 60s and 70s, and they were very different from the movies that he had seen before that. In the same way that the movies of the 1940s were very different from the silent films and the pre-code talkies that he grew up on. Um, and initially, he wants to try to dismiss those because these aren't movies in the sense that he had come to know them. And then suddenly he's emerging as, as really the very best describer of these new spaces. And I think that's part of also what's going on, I think, with yeah. negative space. It's what kind of what isn't in the yes. movie yes. as well as what is in the movie, including the background of movies up until that point, I think. Yes. Oh, look. Yeah, look at this. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it sort of changes the subject to art a little bit, but... Yeah. It's probably a question more for Mark and Patricia, but um, what was um, Manny's attitude about having exhibitions? In other words, how how often did he want to have shows, or did he feel like when he reached a certain point with a certain body of work, he said, you know, gee, I'd like to have a show now, or did he say, like, maybe once a year I'd like to have a show? I mean, how, what was his kind of uh, approach to that? Um, he never he never said anything like that. I'd like a show every year, yeah. but um, he was always always ready for a show. <laughs> Mark, Mark could tell you that. He was always ready. He, he just... Um, I've never known him not to have enough work for a show whenever <laughs> anyone was ready to show it. Yeah. 
the question is about how, how, how would you explain the value of criticism to students who ordinarily might think of the critic as cipher or a, or a parasite? Um, Manny said over and over again, I think he says it in Leah's interview, yes. but he also yes. said it when I interviewed him on stage um, in, at the San Francisco Film Festival, that essentially that, that, that being a, a critic is the most exciting thing a person can do. And sometimes he would say it's, it's, the, most, it's the coolest thing a person could be. Um, and then he would also imply that it was the most intellectually respectable thing that a, a, a person could be. And I think it goes back to those moments in the, in the library. And, and if, if you imagine him in, in, in the Douglas Library, and, and when Patricia was talking about Bisbee, what you have to imagine is that Bisbee is like right next to Douglas. And my, and my understanding is that one of them was created, and I'm not sure which one, by rolling a train downhill. And where the train stopped from the other one, they, they, they found the new city. Um, and I'm not sure whether that's Bisbee or Douglas. Do you know? Um, Bisbee was where the copper mine was. And so and Douglas, Douglas was where the smelter was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that I would imagine that for Manny reading about these films in in magazines that don't exist anymore, that the criticism probably represented access to a wider world. You know, it, it was about New York. It was about Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and it just re- and, and it and it represented. Um, a kind of intellectual life that I think only that library could hint at. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. One small thing to add, uh, as I was rereading the transcripts from this interview, we were talking about the importance of criticism, and he said it was one of the most important things a person could do, as important as curing cancer. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Some directors that that Manny really loved because what, what he was noticing is this sense of kind of struggle and engagement with, um, with film in the, in the, in the, the reading of negative space. And I, and I think that's exactly right. I mean, and, you know, Patricia and I were talking um, that there's a way in which when Manny writes about a film, it's almost unparaphrasable. Like, like when you go back and try to sort of say, well, what did he say about the movie? You end up having to quote large swatches of what, of what he said because his mind is so alive and moving through these nuances and distinctions and, and always inverting and reversing what he just said often. Um, and it's just like the, the paintings. Exa- you know, exactly. Um, and, and I think in the... In the history of films and the history of criticism, Manny was the first person to write seriously about people like Samuel Fuller and Howard Hawks and these kind of action directors, or he called them underground directors, which, a word that developed other meanings in the, in the 60s and 70s. And then he became the first American to take seriously when in the pieces that he was writing with Patricia, people like Fassbinder and, and Werner Herzog. And he was, his studio is as Patricia was sketching, was right around the corner from Michael Snow's studio. So there was this whole element of European film and avant-garde film that was overlaid on these earlier earlier pieces. And you know, and I think there's a, a great quip that Jim Hoberman of The Village Voice said about Manny once, is that he played both ends off against the middle brow. And I think that's, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that you, know, you, you have the kind of white elephant mainstream, you know, to, to dub it maybe a, a, a lot more, um, 
in a binary way than Manny ever would. Um, and then you have the edges that he was he was very, very interested in, whether it was these films he was seeing on 42nd Street in the 1940s and 50s or, or films he was seeing at the Museum of Modern Art um, or at film festivals in the 1970s. I have a question for Robert and Patricia. Uh, in recent years, film director Martin Scorsese hosted a documentary about the work of Val Luton. I suspect that Martin Scorsese discovered Val Luton through Manny Farber. Can you discuss Manny Farber's interest in the work of Val Luton? Do you want to start? Yeah, no, uh, no. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, you can tell them the truth of who made the film. I'd be very, su- <laughs> I'd be very surprised if Martin Scorsese discovered Val Luton through Manny. I mean, I'm sure he grew up watching those films too. And and the, and the film in question, that great documentary, was a collaboration between Scorsese and Kent Jones, who's a a great friend of, of ours and um, is now the the individual who runs um, Martin Scorsese's film preservation um, um, enterprise. I mean, yeah. um, and they're doing very valuable work about rescuing films from all over the over the world. And I think that um, Val Luton represents. In a, I mean, do you all know those films? Like, you know, I, I walked with a zombie or um, cat people. people. Curse of the Cat Woman. Yeah. Um, they're, they're, they're really just astonishing. And, and I think they, they also represent a kind of perfect Manny moment in some ways, in, in which that Val Luton actually wasn't the director of those films. He was the producer of those films. So it's, it's a very unique example of our... Very unique. It, it's a, probably a, a unique yeah. example of a, a, of a producer who's really the auteur behind these movies that were directed by lots of other people. And they... And they, um, they're, they're, everything they do, they do really well. I mean, they, they hover on the edge of kind of documentary and, and surrealism. They were filmed often in studios, but they seem to be, some of them seem to be documentaries about life in New York. And um, they, you know, they moved across the areas that, that, that Manny was very interested in. Um, I'm not sure who the director is to, but you used two phrases before, um, white elephant on yeah. the term, I thought. Are those Manny's terms? And Very much Manny's I terms, yeah. I don't really know what they mean. Could you define yeah. them simply? Yeah. Or is that Do you want to start? <laughs> can you repeat her question? Yeah. yeah. Um, She's looking for definitions of termite art and white elephant, the same way that I was in that garden when I was trying to get Manny to um, define them in in some way. And and I, and I think they they kind of are para, un, they are unparaphrasable. I mean, but but th- think of almost every movie that's won an Oscar in the history of the Oscars, and you have a definition of white elephant art. You know that they're 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 movies that are designed from the moment that they that they're invented to win Oscars, you know, and they're, and they're, and you're supposed to feel good for liking them. And you're supposed to feel that you're engaged in something really important and intellectually and morally uplifting for liking them. And they're, and I think, you know, Manny talked about them as, as films that kind of pump up their own significance in ways that really weren't earned by anything about the writing or the, or the direction. And then, Termite art is, 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 I think, harder to talk about because, I mean, it, you know, he, he talks about it as writers doing, you know, go for broke art and not caring what, you know, what comes of the consequences. Sometimes he talks about it um, 
as if it's all about details, and then other times he talks about it, it's, it's the way that the details fit into some sort of larger, even organic sense of form. And it's, it, it's, it's artists and writers and photographers who kind of churn through material and, and come out on the other side. And, and he had a whole series of metaphors connected to it, long before he named it. And there are always metaphors of, of tunneling through something, plowing through something, overturning something. But, it, you know, and, and the artists that he would mention would be people like um, Howard Hawks, Walker Evans, um, Isaac Rosenfeld, the, the writer and, and critic, so that you could be a termite artist a, across a, a wide range of activities. But, I mean, Patricia was saying earlier today that she never once heard many call anyone a termite artist i mean so that i so that i think that even the the formulation that he's probably most famous for represented a very a very tentative and um transitory um expression on the way to something else and manny was always on the way to something else however useful i think those categories are for the rest of us uh, there's a question from John back here. Hi, John. Yeah, you mentioned the word auteur earlier. Mm. What was Mavi's view of the auteur theory as Andrew Saris and others expounded it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, which, as you know, is very director-centric. Yeah. What was his view of that? Um, as Robert, Robert has been saying, the um, Manny wasn't like... He didn't have... A focus like that, he he could see, and he wrote often about the different directors and 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 what they were after. But um, he wasn't a systems builder like like um, like Saris was. He didn't have all the top all the rungs laid out with you know the very best and the next best and that kind of thing. So he. He would slide in and out, and he and he and he would not um, endorse a film just because it was made by someone that he had previously um, written about, and even written at length and and with great enthusiasm about. He was always ready to revise and and uh, shift. Yeah. Question from a gentleman over here. To what degree did Manny have an appreciation for the New York avant-garde filmmakers like Jonas Meekins, Dan Brackey? Very, very much so. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, the, the question. Oh, yeah, repeat the question. Oh, repeat the question. To what degree did Manny have um, an appreciation of the New York avant-garde filmmakers like Jonas Meekins and Stan Bra or Stan Brackage? Um the ones that that he wrote about, that we wrote about together, were Michael Snow, Ernie Gare, and Ken Jacobs, Tom Tom the Piper's son, um, Andy, Warhol. Andy Warhol, yeah, and, and and he taught he taught these films as well. So again, um, another curious thing is like he he was never interested in um, uh, being the authority. Or, or the being the expert on any one particular thing, um, he he might have written 
what people thought was the most important piece on, on Preston Sturgis, but that doesn't mean he wrote about every single film or um, uh, he was he was after qualities and he was after um, describing and pinning down those qualities rather than encircling a whole area. So um, there never was an article about Jonas Mekis, but he knew them and and was very much for them. So, okay. <laughs> and, he, and he wrote about um, Paul, like a Paul Strand film very early on, either for The Nation or The New Republic. And um, he was also very interested in the films of his friend, the poet Weldon Keith. I mean, so he very much... I think traveled in that world, and I think he he also very much came out of the kind of partisan review intellectual New York intellectual world of the of the 1940s. A question from Manny's daughter. So, Nick, you talk about the transition from non-figurative art to figurative painting. Uh, <laughs> can you repeat that question? Okay. Why don't you take it, <laughs> the, uh, Manny's transition from <laughs> non-figurative art, the, uh, I imagine you mean the large abstract paper pieces, to uh, probably, I guess, the, the first series he, he did would have been the Artur series, so that was figurative. The, the stationary. Stationary, the candy series. Um, the... I don't know if it's as easy as I've always thought it was, his transition from these very uh, scrubbed, worked uh, paper pieces to the uh, stationary and candy series. I always thought that that uh, it was a natural for Manny, since he was, uh, at that time, still uh, writing film criticism, that he started painting objects that he used in film criticism, whether they were typewriters, pens, whiteout, um, uh, the candy that he would uh, see or get in movie theaters, started a, a whole series of, of candy. I, and I never really talked to him about that, whether that was the truth or whether that was just some dream I had that was easily explainable to collectors. Um, <laughs> one thing I want to tell uh, Michael owns a, a painting called Hacks right. really yes. and I write about in the introduction and, and it's um, at least it, it, it seems to be the, the painting uh, uh, like the, the, the candies that he would have experienced in, some, in, the, in the movie theaters that he went to as a, yeah. as a kid you know? um, so that, there was always an autobiographical Element in Manny's paintings, the the representational paintings, um, and the other thing that I would just add to what you were saying is that there, are, the representational paintings are neither abstract nor representational in in some I think essential yeah. way. They're yeah. they're very conceptual, you know. And I think that the paintings on paper were maybe as far as you could push a certain kind of pure conceptual art, and then and then the 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 candy paintings, the stationary paintings, the auteur paintings, they're they're really all about these multi perspectives that couldn't really exist in the world and they were painted flat, right? And so they so they were painted in the same style that Jackson Pollock would have painted his paintings, and then you stand it up and then you end up with something that looks that looks very, very 
different. Mm-hmm. But it's um, um, it is fascinating to me, though. You know that that um, for most of the time that he was writing criticism, a lot of criticism, he yeah. was an abstract painter, and then. When he started to think about stopping writing criticism, yeah. he suddenly there were there were stories and narratives and yeah. and objects, you know, and autobiographical stories inside these paintings in which all these conceptual things are going on at the same time. It, it was like the the impulses that went into the writing found a home in the in the paintings. I think um, in talking about those shifts in his painting, you have a similar problem that um, you have in talking about or trying to make clear-cut binary oppositions uh, with this terminology. Because when you think about how his earliest work really drew from um, those cartoons, those uh, little sports cartoon um, caricatures and sketches so he really started out from a figurative place then he went to the abstract painting then the long period of the tabletop still lifes and I I remember talking to him about his his latest paintings um, feeling like they really came full circle because they were so much about color almost to, not to the exclusion, but but more about color than about the objects that the color was mm-hmm. representing, and he he agreed with that. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you, Robert Toledo. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.